Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Media Voices Podcast. This week, we're going to be doing an in-depth look at newsletters in advance of our Media Moments 2022 report, in which newsletter is going to make up quite a big section of what we write about because there has been so much news around newsletters over the past year. So this is the latest in our series of deep dives looking at the key media moments that have shaped the industry over the past 12 months. We've already covered broadcast, advertising, local news and subscriptions. And we're delighted to say that this season we're going to be bringing in a media expert for every single episode. And so this week we are joined by Mark Stenberg, who's senior media reporter at Adweek based in New York. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think I've said this to y'all, but I'm a I'm a avid reader of the newsletter. So this is a little bit of a meeting your your <laughs> role models moment. But yeah, no, so yes, to be here and uh, talking my my favorite subject in the world, newsletters. That is fantastic. That testimonial is going to be plastered across everything <laughs> we do now for the next couple of years. Um, so before we get into it, the topics we're discussing this season, so everything we mentioned before, our newsletters plus more, we're going to be discussing that in our annual Media Moments 2022 report, which is released on November 30th. And you can pre-register to receive that report as soon as it goes live over at voices.media forward slash mm22 but esther we have to thank somebody don't we for this uh, for this entire season and for this episode we do thank you very much to um the, our sponsors pool um that's p triple o l uh, pool is the membership and subscription suite used by leading publishers like future euro news l magazine france half of business review and others from around the world um, they've got an all-in-one platform that helps publishers convert manage and retain their members and subscribers so you can find out more about them at pool.tech that's pool triple o tech and we'll link to them from our show notes at voices.media in case you forget the o like i keep doing <laughs> you know what actually speaking of things that we've forgotten to do we've forgotten to introduce ourselves i'm chris Sutcliffe. <laughs> i'm esther thorpe i'm peter Hoster. and peter why don't you tell us because we, we talk about newsletters almost every single week on the podcast what do you think is behind this last year where we've seen newsletter subscriptions not become you know a, a nice to have for publishers but become mm. a sort of necessary thing to have well, that's this kind of wave, and it's probably gone on. I don't know. It probably started in, well, depending who you believe, it started in 2017 when Substack started. Um, but newsletters, I think, have changed. And we've gone from this kind of, oh, let's fire out a newsletter and keep people happy and let them know what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. This kind of have to do it. There's something that people, I think, are really excited about doing. And mm. I think people are trying different things. They're trying different business strategies. They're trying different engagement, retention strategies. And I, and I think, you know, for the first time, Reuters has actually included it in the digital news report as a separate chapter. Um, so, yeah, that's why we're talking about it. And in fact, while we're talking about that in terms of people being excited about this, Mark, what are some of the trends you've seen over the past year in terms of how people are experimenting with it? Because in addition to what Peter said, I've seen people experimenting with the form, content, you know, sort of the personalities behind newsletters as well. So what have you seen in terms of those trends? Well, I think one of the interesting ones, this is like the nerdiest and least interesting, and then I promise I'll build up to most interesting. Uh, well, I think is I, I mentioned this a little bit, but like the advertising that goes on in email newsletters, I think is a, we're sort of at like day one there in terms of what's the most effective way to have like a premium advertising experience. One of the interesting like Morning Brew is a great example of like they write out the copy, and so it's like more native, but it's manual. And as you do more and more newsletters, that's not really going to scale. So that is a little bit to me like the equivalent of in podcasting, like the host read ad, like takes a lot of effort, very bespoke, but doesn't really work on like a grand scale. So I think we're starting to see more of like an introduction of like, how do you have like a premium ad or how do you have a programmatic ad and have it look sexy, uh, not disrupt the, the reader experience too much, but still be targeted. So I think just like how ads are delivered is sort of step one of like areas in which I think there's a little bit of customization coming in. Um, but I think that there's also, so playing like media bingo here, how, how long is it going to take me to bring up Semaphore? Um, I think that they're just like an interesting example because Simaphore just launched earlier this week and they have this whole template, the Simaform, which I'm sure y'all all read about, uh, but they're trying to extend that into their newsletter. Uh, and so even the newsletter kind of follows this proprietary looking, at least aesthetic, right? And so you can clearly tell when you're reading like a Simaphore newsletter versus, uh, a, you know, a Morning Brew newsletter, uh, another publisher who's also sort of tried to make their calling card 
their their article format is this other publisher grid they're doing a similar thing with their newsletters where they've basically said we have a sort of aesthetic that we own on our website and that is our signature and now we want to translate that over into our newsletters so i think you're seeing a little bit of like how can the email channel grow to evolve and reflect the aesthetic and design concerns uh the publishers have put a lot of thought into their websites now we're starting to see that you know being applied a little bit to the the newsletter form so i think that's a bit interesting yeah that's interesting we should definitely talk about that in terms of that um decision that publishers need to kind of own their own look you know whether that is using these proprietary or third-party newsletter providers so is it true then that based on what mark's just said esther that we have hit this sort of almost singularity where the ability for people to monetize themselves as the tech around it has finally caught up with the ambition um sort of yeah i think i think there's there's been an awful lot of factors that have come together and i like mark and peter have mentioned some of them i think we can't discount as well the a lot of the disappointment that platforms have given publishers. Um, you know, even sort of five, ten years ago, there was hopes that you know pl- platforms like Facebook and um, Instagram would would provide a way for publishers to build audiences and and reach new people. You know, you could post an article to there, and people who followed your page could see that you posted the article. And as that has basically gone up in flames. Um, email has just <laughs> email has been chugging along in the background for what is it thirty years, uh, and there is very little that stops an email getting through to you if you signed up to it. Probably um, mm-hmm. doesn't obviously spam filters and things like that. But but in general, if if you want to keep in touch with your audience, email has remained a very steady, very stable place to do that. And I think what's changed recently, and, and what's particularly come around this year, is that. Platforms like Substack, there are a lot of people um, that, particularly solo creators, that launched on that, and they said, "Hey, you know, there's an opportunity for me here without the tech, the huge, huge sort of tech overhead, to actually join this platform, get a newsletter out to my audience." Um, you look at companies like Axios, who again did the same thing, where they said, "We can get content out to our audience with a sort of smart mention of the aesthetics, a very sort of minimum viable product. We don't need a fancy web like Axios's website is." quite difficult to actually navigate but you know we don't need a fancy website we can just use this format and i think it's it's a productization of email that really this year has come to the forefront for a lot of publishers saying hey if 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 these sort of newer publishers and solo operators are seeing such success with this really cranky old format (laughs) can we actually look at what we're doing and be a lot smarter with it can we treat it like a product not as a marketing arm and that, for me, has been the big thing I've kind of seen this year. And, and that, I think, is going to feed through to a lot of tech innovation in terms of ad monetization things in the next couple of years. It's is, is just taking it more seriously as a product. Well, talking about that in terms of solar creators, I see there's there's a lot of parallels here between what's been going on with podcasting and what's been going on with newsletters in that it's sort of democratization of content creation. And now that advertising tech has caught up or to some extent has been developed specifically for these formats – that there is the that ability for people to monetize themselves, whether that through subscriptions, advertising on those different media. One thing that I do want to mention, though, Esther, is you were talking about that as being this kind of cranky old format. And something that came out of the Digital News Report was that um, more than 80% of everyone in the US who uses email as their main source for news is 35%, is 35 years and above, rather. Whereas just 5% of 25 to 34-year-olds and 3% of 18 to 24-year-olds rely on email access as a main source for news. That, to me, speaks to a format that really hasn't necessarily found a way to market itself yet to a a new generation. What do you think, Peter? It's a weird one for me. Um, I remember working for a B2B publisher. And (laughs) this was back in the 80s. And the whole gambit and getting people to buy into their first online presence was to give people free email addresses. They gave them a dial-up CD and they gave them a seed, a, a, an email address. can't even remember who it was with. Some <laughs> problems don't exist anymore. Uh, this was in Hong Kong. That is a completely so, different world. It was, it was bonkers. It was absolutely bonkers. So this, the idea that kids, you know, I always get punched in the head for calling people kids, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, don't have an email address. It just blows my mind. Or they, it's not that they don't have an email address. They just don't use their email. 
Uh, and I, I believe it. I hundred percent believe it. You know, I, I, my daughter's twenty five, and she, all her messaging is is on um, I don't know TikTok and Instagram. I knew she, you were going to say TikTok first. The only time she That's ever I uses, feel it in my bones. Well, the only time she ever uses email is for like official documents and getting a dentist appointment or something. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, it's it's I, I believe it, and I think it's a problem for for publishers looking at a long term. But I don't know what to do about it. Well, let, let's let's ask Mark that then. Is that is that necessarily a problem for publishers who are looking further down the pipe than necessarily who they're monetizing right now? Yeah, that's email is fundamental, but is it gonna be? That's a great question. I think that there's like the the larger issue here. This is like a, a personal bugaboo that's been bubbling up within me for like several months now. And I think I'm going to unleash it on this show, uh, <laughs> which is that um, I think there's a lot of statistics where you look and you say young people prefer to get their news on social media. How do we get them reading on email? How do we get them opening apps? I don't have data to support this. This is purely like a hypothesis, but I don't think that young people go to social media looking for news. I think they go to social media and there's news on it and they consume it there. And then when they respond in a survey, where do you get your news? They say social media, right? But I don't think that there's, I think that the movement of people toward reading their news on apps or reading their news uh, in, a, in a newsletter, which is a far more intentional way of getting your news, that I think happens as you get a little bit older and you get to an age where you start thinking, I really do want to be a news consumer. This is important for my job or for my personal finances mm -hmm. or whatever. And then I think you you read less on social media. I mean, social media is just not a great place to consume news with any consistency or or you, you, you don't know well. what you're going to get. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's so much like we need to get the younger generation off of social media and onto news or onto newsletters so much as it is as people grow more serious about consuming the news. And it's a small portion of the population. I would imagine they'll start gravitating toward the channels where they can do so with consistency. And I think newsletters, that's their strongest case to make. So it's not an aging thing for me. It's a, how intent are you about consuming news? And if you are intent about it, you're going to start finding and, and searching for it using vehicles that, you know, are reliable. That's BT my Lola, favorite you gonna say take ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, love, yeah. I love that. I love the fact that, you know, that, that idea of you, as you, as you grow, not necessarily as you grow up, but as you grow, you find, uh, you find the newsletters that work for you. Like Mark says, for, for, for whether it's news or whether it's personal finance, whether it's sport or music or whatever it is. You find the things that work for you. I get, I don't know how many newsletters I get. Dozens. I probably read regularly five of them. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you kind of find your newsletter. I, I signed up for the semaphore newsletter. I get, is it flagship? Um, i got to be honest. It's If it doesn't change a little bit, it won't be getting opened. <laughs> I just find it so dense. There's mm. so much in there. I think as well, we we should probably differentiate between newsletters which are primarily news based and those which are personality led. Yeah. So, for instance, I I, I have a ton of email newsletters that I've subscribed to. Um, Terry White, uh, White Noise, where she's talking about TV and films. Uh, John Ellis' Doctor Who one, which is very very good. But they're not what I and I open them regularly, but I don't consider them you know part of my news consumption. No. So, Esther, when we're talking about solo newsletters, to what extent do we have to differentiate between people who are doing news and people who do newsletters off their own back around a sort of niche interest? Um, I think that's quite complicated. I think people, people will subscribe to newsletters for different reasons. Um, and I, I can't think of that many people that do Individual newsletters that are, that are yeah. actually personal, like the people who do news newsletters that are personality-led because to, to do news is actually a huge resource undertaking. Um, but what we have seen is there's a lot of publishers who have looked at the kind of personal solo operators and have said, actually, we can see the value of having the byline on that and actually having it sort of what we produce sort of summarised and signed off by a person. Um, and that's, that's definitely something, again, that's come to the forefront in the last few years is where Publishers who traditionally very much kept a, a separation between you, know, you, you come and you work for us, and you are our brand, um, who have actually sort of said, um, you know, you can launch your own newsletter under our banner, and we'll help you support and build that audience. Um, and it is it's a, 
it's almost like they, they've recognised the value of, of newsletters coming from people and have said, actually, can we use that a bit more and, and centre our journalists a bit more? And you know, I mean, there's all sorts of complexities around that with, you know, you've got the risk that people leave and um, take that audience with them. But it, it's it's been good to see a little bit more trust placed in some of the talent that publishers have working for them. What I thought was really, you, you, I think, Esther, you flagged us down in the notes about the difference between the US and the UK in terms of people signing up to individuals' newsletters. Could you just maybe explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I, think, I thought this one was fascinating. I'm, I'm really grateful that this was from the Reuters Digital News Report, who again had, had looked at this this year for the first time. Um, and I, I think we hear so much, so many examples we think of are US based solo operators. You know, you've got the big names like Casey Newton, uh, you've got the yeah. Galaxy Brain, Char- uh, Charlie Walsall. And you've got, you've got these people that are, almost all the big names you can think of are US based. And there's always been that thing that is that because that's just how we report. But actually, the the subscription rate to those individuals is about five times more in the in the US than it is the UK. Um, so in the US, about eighteen percent of people do subscribe to an individual creator, which is that's that's a pretty decent number. Um, in the UK, that's four <laughs> percent. So I, I don't know whether is the US a bit ahead of where you know we're going to see more of that pick up across the UK, Europe, some of the other markets, mm-hmm. or is that just because the US is much like gravitates much more to those individual personalities? Yeah, Mark. What do you what do you think about that? Is this is it a difference in sort of personality led news, or what's the behind that? Do you think? Yeah, that's a great question because I mean, fill me in here. I, I mean, I don't think that people in the UK have some sort of uh, disinclination toward personality based news. I, I my like general assumption in these matters is that the US, I think, has less of uh, less sentimentality about how things have been done historically. And so whenever there's some new trend or some new disruption or some new tech, I think our not only our news consumers, but our news producers, I think are more likely to jump on that more quickly. Whereas I, I'll do some reporting on like a French newspaper, UK newspaper, Spanish newspaper, things, digital subscriptions are a great example. Digital subscription rates in the US are, I think, a, a, sort of a similar rate, like significantly higher, I think, than they are, at least in France. I was, I was doing some research on that. Um, so I think there's just an inclination to move toward new things more quickly. Uh, and I think that to me explains like, a little bit of the the solo newsletter operator rise. 18% though is a lot because I'm still like, if you're talking about a solo newsletter writer, that's essentially just Substack or review or like one of those platforms. And to think that one in five Americans is consuming news from one of those platforms, to me that like boggles the mind a little bit. Yeah. I know that there are probably people like me and like other people in the media industry like y'all like who are consuming a bunch of newsletters. Um, but that one in five Americans is consuming a solo operator newsletter. That's does, that's pretty. Does, does Joe Rogan do a newsletter? Because that might just about bring the numbers up. <laughs> yeah, maybe it depends on how it's delivered. It's like a Joe Rogan newsletter, uh, and it just sends you his podcast, and maybe that's how they're juicing the numbers. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know that he can write. I think what Mark saying is right. I think the states move faster than the UK. I also think that the UK, in particular, is more. If more focused on brands for news. I think our yeah. trusted brands are, we're a lot more tribal in our news. You know, the people that read The Telegraph probably aren't going to read anyone that hasn't written for The Telegraph. But within The Telegraph is a good example. You've got the likes of Chopper. His newsletter comes from him. It's an individual. He has a personality. So they are playing to that. You know, there's a, there's I guess a, what, uh, I think what I was a, saying right about under the think, aegis of a brand. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real there's a, there's a mirroring of what goes on in podcasting as well here, particularly mm. with the newspapers. Is they take a columnist and they give them a podcast and a newsletter, and that's the kind of that's the package that you end up with. That's actually ironic too. Um, Peter Kafka wrote a piece in August um, about newsletters and he he drew just that comparison he said that um newsletters are just like blogs and podcasts in that they're now they are very very easy for anybody to create but turning them into something beyond a hobby actually requires talent and a lot of sustained effort and so he he says that um the big change that's come over the last few years that you've got this you had this huge hype in 2020 when you know like everybody was going to leave their jobs and launch a newsletter and make a living and um 
I think literally, literally just Casey Newton and a few others will succeed. <laughs> um, but he says that in its place, there is now a much more realistic attitude about the format and the business you can build around it. And I, I can't disagree with that. It's interesting. I was chatting to a friend of the podcast, Charlotte Henry. We went for a coffee not too long ago. We were talking about exactly that, about people who have large social media audiences and a brand in and of themselves in the UK who have tried to launch a newsletter and it has subsequently failed or they've you know given it a go and said, well, actually, we cannot scale this beyond where we're at now. And is is that just as a consequence of the fact that you know newsletters in the UK are relatively niche when you're talking about an individual creator? Plus, you're marrying that with this inability, I suppose, of people to monetize effectively through subscriptions and advertising unless you're past a certain threshold of, of subscribers. Is it just that you have to be launching this having already established a brand, yourself as a brand, rather? I, I, I can't speak to how it is specifically in the UK, but I know in the US, that's a, that's. I was reporting on this a lot when I was kind of an insider and it was in 2020 and everybody was launching either a Substack or an OnlyFans or a Patreon or whatever. Everybody had some like side hustle that they were getting off the ground. And my lament was always, oh, Substack's only going to work for you if you already have 100,000 Twitter followers that mm-hmm. you can pour it into it and turn it into a business. But then for every like criticism I had like that, there is a counterexample of somebody who came up from nothing and had this wonderful voice and it got discovered and they sort of like hit the jackpot. And now, like I'm thinking in my head of, I don't know if you know, Alicia Kennedy, she's a food writer um, and she does a really great newsletter that had literally started from scratch in the pandemic. And now she's like made it into her whole career uh, and is like writing books and getting teaching gigs and it's just totally changed her life. And I know that there are other examples like that. So unfortunately you, there's like if there was like a nice sort of i don't know explanation for what led one person to succeed and another not to obviously having a pre-existing social following isn't a benefit but it's certainly not a requisite so it's it's still a, a little bit of a art more than science does this not again <laughs> speak to how disappointing platforms have been because what what financial use is 100,000 Twitter followers? <laughs> but if you can convert 10% of those to a paying newsletter, you've got a salary. Yeah, seriously. I feel like that's been the the thorn in the side of Twitter for forever. It's, it's like you start at Twitter, you get famous, and then you take those followers and you make money off them on another platform. And everybody at Twitter is like, how can we make it such that Twitter fame can bring you money on Twitter and all the various ways they've tried to make that happen have, have all <laughs> I know. Flop. We'll buy a newsletter platform, which a year <laughs> on... They haven't really done anything with it. Yeah. Well, or super wow. follows or the tip yeah, jar. That whole, yeah, yeah, whole yeah. conversation's done anyway, though. What's interesting is I think, I mean, Esther, you sort of went viral for your wedding dress with pockets. Oh, and my girlfriend went viral on Twitter for uh, a joke about um, MacBooks and, and Macbeth and nothing, <laughs> you know, as a result. But the, the dream is there, is this idea that you can you can make it as an individual creator. And I think that's what so much of the early excitement around places like Substack and Review were based on. It, it's sad, I suppose, it, it's what I'm trying to get across, the recognition of how much work that goes into that. And you can't just necessarily set up with a dream and uh, your own point of view unless you have previously had success somewhere else. I just mm-hmm. kind of find it quite disappointing that that's where we're at in 2022. It's very true. The nature of the beast. It's it's built on virality. It's not built on hard work. It's built on dumb luck. Yeah. Right place, (sighs) right time. When this this was another component, like when I was first writing about Substack, I said that one of the, the weaknesses that it has is that unlike a blog, there just didn't really seem to be much much SEO capability. So every time you publish something, I guess there's a chance that somebody could Google it in your sub. But when was the last time you Googled something in a Substack post was like the first thing that surfaced? Like, so even though you go through all the work of writing something, I don't think that it has the longevity that even a blog post has. So you, you put a lot of work into it and then it kind of disappears into the ether. And as a result, your, your method of distribution is exclusively your subscribers. And so if you don't have subscribers ported over from some other platform, you don't have that. You don't, cause you talk to publishers. I mean, Google is, generally 60% to 80% of their traffic. And with newsletters, you just get essentially, you know, none of that. So even audience building is really difficult if you don't have, you know, a big Twitter, essentially. Is this yet another example of, you know, we've mentioned it a few times, I really don't want to over-egg it because the the comparison is not one-to-one. But in terms of podcasting, the issue of discovery, 
Now we're talking about newsletters. How are people doing discovery really well, whether that's at a publisher or on an individual basis? Can I just jump back a little bit? Because one of the things, the the people that Esther has named, okay? So Brian Morrissey, or I'll I'll throw in a couple of new ones. Brian Morrissey, Troy Young, Charlie Valso, Casey Newton. What have they all got in common? Men. Oh, yes, but no. (laughs) Go on. They all came from a huge brand. And they're publishing to the market that that brand was publishing to. So it's really, it's kind of a brand extension Mm. in a weird sort of way. Yeah. And that's why I say that for other people, I'm not doing them down. I'm not saying that they're not clever and they don't put a lot of work in. But there's a lot of people that are clever and put a lot of work in that get nowhere. So the ones, you know, the ones that really, really take off, it's virality. It's it's fucking dumb work. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, that's that's not a solution. That's just a problem. And I have like, some magic beans that bring dumb luck <laughs> to newsletter writers. And yet, despite all these problems that we're that we're flagging, um, you know, that kind of nascent opportunity to generate revenue through advertising, the issues with discovery, uh, the relatively low chance that you can make it as a, as a solo creator. Esther, it is true that we've seen publishers almost putting all the regs in the newsletter basket over the past year, isn't it? We've seen so many people investing so much in using newsletters as a law for subscribers and sort of as a product in their own right. Um, I don't know if many publishers are putting everything into newsletters, mm. but I'd say there's, it's That's like fair. I said at the beginning, there's, there's definitely more investment in taking them more seriously. They're not just a sort of side thing anymore. Uh, like The Atlantic, just at the end of last year, actually hired nine new newsletter writers um, as part of their subscriber strategy, and that's that's really really smart um, what they're doing with that. Um, the Guardian again, I think at the start of the year they um, they made hires to refresh their um, to refresh their newsletter offering. Uh, I think if you're a newsletter editor, that is now sort of the sexy job title on the on the market. <laughs> um, I mean, personally, I think podcast producer, <laughs> but, you know, whatever that's. Fun. Industry dive, Mark. I, I know you've um, you've written quite a bit about this recently. They. They essentially built their business off the back of newsletters and they sold to Inform in the UK for 323 million, which shows just how valuable you can be as a as a newsletter business. Um, yeah, and I, th- I just think Forbes had a scheme as well they launched last year, but I, I couldn't find out what happened to that one. You Are you talking about where it was like a revenue share and if you were... Yeah. You drove... They gave like healthcare benefits and stuff and a, a sort of support in return for distribution i think i need to look into that because i do i think maybe i wrote about that or i remember when that happened i might have written about it at insider but i remember that distinctly because it was sort of this this model of oh we you know forbes kind of anybody can write for it if they meet some certain criteria so if they also bring in this big audience of theirs and they convert some of those people into subscribers then i think they got a portion Mm -hmm. of revenue generated from that conversion yeah i, I did uh, try to research what happened to it but nobody's well there, there you are that's that's your piece for Adweek next week <laughs> yes seriously. it was clearly uh, a huge success because we've had so much <laughs> I, to its credit forbes is like very experimental yeah. and but i think that they're also not ashamed to like try something have it fail and then like quietly kill it which I imagine is what happened with that newsletter program. But I actually should try and get them to say that definitively because we're, we're coming across like Facebook, cut, you know, closing bulletin, uh, review just dying on the vine, all these sub stackers returning to the flock and, and, and getting back into these big organizations. There's, I think this is what Peter Kafka was getting at to some degree of like, have we reached the next chapter where it's just like we're more things need to be sustainable? Um, yeah. I will just say there's there's a point Chris raised earlier that um, I I do really want to touch on because I think the way Substack have done it could actually be really transformative over the next few years. They very quietly started putting in newsletter recommendation slots that you could put into your newsletters um, to recommend people that did similar newsletters. And and one of the things that's that's really proved true over the last couple of years is that um, people love signing up to newsletters if they already get newsletters and read newsletters. And some of our most loyal newsletter readers have come from other newsletters. So there's a, it's a sort of <laughs> ends up being a bit of a self-fulfilling circle. Um, but Substack have realized that if they promote newsletters to people who like newsletters, it's a really, really good growth strategy. A couple of people were talking on Twitter and saying that um, it's actually been 
next to their Twitter followers, one of the biggest um, growth curves they've seen is this recommendation tool. And I think if publishers can take that and actually get a bit smarter about that, you know, if you subscribe to um, a particular newsletter on The Guardian, is there... Um, are there other Guardian newsletters on those topics that you might also enjoy? And it's it's just pulling that together a bit more and, and using the recommendations. Morning Brew used to talk about that, and they talked about advertising in the adjacent newsletters. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I wrote about that to a degree, like, Morning Brew definitely does it. Axios definitely does it. Politico definitely does it. Like, and it, it is to your point, Esther, uh, sort of self-perpetuating. Uh, you you build a newsletter empire, and then when people are reading that, you promote your other newsletters, and because they're already reading a newsletter, you know that they have a high propensity to read, and so you can kind of just grow your own backyard by cross pollinating like that. I've also heard a similar strategy for podcasts. I don't. You all probably have far more you know insight as to whether that works or not. Uh, than I do. But for newsletters, yeah, that's why I think that's an an incredibly smart strategy. And like, even it doesn't even have to be within a newsletter. I've been a big proponent of if you're reading an article and it's about a certain subject matter, have the like in article newsletter sign up. Like, I think that's such a powerful driver. And that actually goes to sort of a little bit one of the things that I shared um, about Vogue and their efforts around the Met Gala and how like essentially in one night they were able to get a hundred thousand in 24 hours, they were able to get a hundred thousand newsletter signups uh, by essentially, I guess in that instance, what they actually did was they gated some very popular content behind um, an email newsletter signup. But I think like the idea is the same of if you have a product or an article that is of a certain subject matter and you're offering more of that subject matter through a newsletter, the people who are finding their way to that content are very highly likely to sign up for that newsletter. So just another way of like not only growing your audience, but you know, we can get to this a little bit later, getting that first party data that's becoming increasingly important to publishers. So I do have a counter question to that though, because I think one of the things you mentioned Axios, um, they, they obviously they go very very deep within their niches, and they also do quite a bit cross promotion. But they've mm. they've got their pro um, their paid newsletter products yeah. now. And I, are they expecting people to pay for sort of two or three verticals, or it, it, what's that sort of count? I suppose that that balance between you're going really really deep, but the deeper you go, the less people you're going to have pay, but the more valuable it is. But you also perhaps don't then get those cross promotion opportunities. Well, why would you not get the cross promotional opportunities? Because there's fewer people. Or because the newsletters that they're cross-promoting are... I, I, I suppose the deeper you go into a topic, the the less people are going to want to subscribe. To, so I love their media stuff, but I'm not going to be interested in their um, their healthcare vertical. Mm-hmm. It would make sense though, if you were reading like a Sarah Fisher newsletter that they would then promote, which they do, the... Um, I'm, I'm blanking Media on deals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the 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 more the five ninety nine one, but if you were in the five hundred ninety, the Axios Pro one, they wouldn't be then promoting maybe their more upper funnel. They wouldn't send you back to Sarah Fisher, right? So I feel like the promotion sort of moves people down the funnel. At least if you're talking about like a paid product like Pro, whereas if you're superficial and you're on that top level like the Sarah Fishers, you can be promoting. Crosswise, um, I think probably with some success. But to your point, it, it does become a little bit difficult with uh, sort of subject matter specific newsletters. <laughs> yeah, y'all need to offer another email that's five hundred ninety nine dollars <laughs> and see how many media voices I, I, I listeners you can convert. Absolutely. Gosh, um, I do have another question in relation to that though, because um, Mark, I know, I know again you you write about quite a few of the um, leading uh, publishers in the US. Where are people at in terms of? monetization of newsletters because that also seems to be something that it's it's twigged that people can actually have newsletters as a paid product it's twigged well i that sort of five f- so, sorry is that a uk that's phrase? A Brit- that is a britishism oh, okay, yes. sorry. <laughs> um, uh, certainly five years ago oh hang on Esther, Esther, sorry, can paid- I say, mark if i said oh the pennies dropped would you know what that meant my nearest guess would be that it's like the shit hit the fan. That's a good, that's a good guess. It's, it's a very totally good guess. Wrong, yes. <laughs> the, the light bulb has come on. I'll, I'll re, I'll re-ask uh-huh. that. There you go. Um, 
one of the things I think has, has become particularly apparent in the last few years is that there's been a, a bit of a light bulb moment that you can monetize newsletters and you can have yeah, newsletters as a subscription product. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose, how, how have you seen that change this this year? Uh, so as in our publishers offering sort of subscription-only newsletters versus mm-hmm. just their – oh, yeah, I think that that's something where we're still like very much the, – the, the publishers who are doing that I think are at sort of the forefront of newsletter strategy. And to me, that is the Times of the Atlantic who we've talked about rolling out these subscriber-only newsletters. I think the jury's still out. Like I imagine they're still collecting data and trying to see how worthwhile that is. Anecdotally, I – don't know of any instances in which somebody has subscribed to the Times specifically to get a newsletter mm-hmm. that they wanted to read. I mean, I'm sure that it's happened, but I have to feel like that's like not a compelling enough value proposition. The whole thing, like, I feel like we don't talk about with the Substack solo newsletters. One of the biggest sort of benefits there is that they're so cheap. It's like $5, $4 sometimes. for. So I'm happy to pay for multiple of those versus the New York Times. One subscription is going to be what, $20, $25, $30. It's just getting more and more expensive. So are you going to get someone to subscribe in order to read a newsletter? I don't know. And I think that's what publishers are really starting to grapple with. Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if they pull back on that. Mm. And just make it like our newsletters are free to read. And if you click through them and you want to actually get to the content and there's a paywall there, that's a different story. But I'm not so sure about like, does a subscription newsletter model make sense within a publisher? I'm a little bit more skeptical about I, that. I really wanted to see what would happen. So Mel said that they were going to launch three paid newsletters this year mm-hmm. before they got shut down. And I was I was really hoping to keep an eye on that because they... Their content was all free to read, and I, I was really excited for the prospect of what they were going to do. But alas, I think so much of it is more. about the messaging as well. Like if you're talking about, you know, in terms of we were talking about on the subscriptions um, episode not too long ago, we were talking about what now is paid for versus what is free, and what do you offer free at point of access versus what is now paid for analysis. Outside of the Substack model, I just I'm like I don't the idea of charging for a newsletter within a larger news organization. It seems, you know, I was talking about this with somebody, gosh, who it was, it was the people at the Atlantic. I was like doing like a panel with them the other day and we were talking about like the, all the new ways that they're trying to monetize their, uh, intellectual property. That was like the, the theme of the, the, the discussion. And the CEO was saying, one of the things that we have to like be concerned about now more days than ever is like confusing our customer and like what is included in a subscription I think with the times and like they're moving toward the bundle in a big way, there is like an element of like, you need to keep this pretty simple because you're probably only going to get somebody on that, like pay to subscribe page for one second. And if it's confusing to them about like, you get this newsletter, you don't get this newsletter, you get this website, you don't get this news product, like whatever the case is. I generally, obviously I feel like most of us would trend toward the simpler solution is the best Mm -hmm. and having there be almost too many moving parts, I feel like could be counterproductive. Mark, we were talking about our media moments from the past year earlier, and, and one of the things that you brought up was this uh, change around Apple's uh, privacy protection. I wondered if you could maybe take us through why that was your one of your choices for key media moment for newsletters. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating for a number of reasons. I think one is that it's a good reminder that even email newsletter is not a platform agnostic channel. <laughs> You know, like I was having a conversation last night, like there's no escaping algorithms. There's no escaping third party tech companies controlling how our editorial reaches our consumers. We'd like newsletters because it was this direct connection. But then Apple makes a change and you realize, no, we're still at the mercy of these tech providers in some other form or fashion. Um, So I think that was like a sort of sobering reminder of the powerlessness of of the media industry. Oh, God, it's Um, it's so dystopian. You said like there's no escaping algorithms, and I was like, that is Blade Runner, that is I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, (laughs) that is all these dystopian fictions all rolled into one. And actually, we had that. We saw that as well with Substack, didn't we? Because they've just gone on. Well, they launched a couple of months ago um, their Substack app, which had a button turned on by default that said, "If you read a newsletter in this app, we'll stop the email getting sent to you." And like that, that kind of interception of somebody who's agreed to receive an email that it's then like, "Oh no, you can read it in our lovely little sort of platform reader." That's really concerning to me. Yeah. 
Well, and I also thought it was just really interesting from a metrics and measurement perspective because one of the things that I talk about at Adweek a lot is, like I just alluded to earlier, the deprecation of third-party cookies mm -hmm. leading to the rise in the importance of first-party data. Email is this great thing because you theoretically could know somebody opted in so they are interested in this subject matter so you can charge more for a CPM for advertising and you can tell when they open the article you know open the email versus open the article so like what they're actually interested in so you can serve them better content like it was this really great vacuum of measurability and attribution and then this new policy from Apple comes along the the mail privacy protection and it really I think Apple Mail is like 30% of like most email users mm -hmm. in, in the US. And so all of a sudden, 30% of like all these newsletter publishers now were no longer able to tell whether somebody was reading their material or not. Marketing Brew is one of these newsletters that designs the email to be read almost entirely within the email. Like you don't have to click a link in order yeah, to get we're, the post. We're exactly the same. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't click the links, but I read the stuff. And they're like, we, we don't know. Not to be rude, yeah, but we don't care. Like, we, don't, like, we yeah. need to know that you're there. Yeah. It was just, just such things. a mismatch between like design and yeah. outcome. Ideally, you want uh, something like a, a uh, HTML bell that you have to ring when you enter the, <laughs> the newsletter so that everyone knows you are there and you are sort of engaged with it. Yeah. I just saw a thing today about the. The FT did exactly that and got 78,000 people to respond to a survey, basically because they didn't know what their email rates were. See, here's again, the issue that's, with that's that. That's a self-selecting group. It is, but that's also novelty because people aren't going to do that every single time they open a newsletter. You know what I mean? Like after a while, and particularly when so many of them are designed to be digestible and effectively your one-stop shop for almost news updates, you're not going to get people well, walking through every day, even if it benefits I the think, publisher. I think what's interesting about that is actually that it totally undercuts the open rate mm. issue. Because your salespeople are just always going to go out and say, well, yeah, open rates, well, who cares? We've got a survey that 78,000 people responded to. And that'll last a long, long time. There's your media kit right there. You know what's good <laughs> is that we actually, have, we actually have a really good open rate for our newsletter, but you've just completely undercut it. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was going to say I've had this happen where some publishers are like, well, you, you know, you can't trust the open rate anymore. So that's why we use X to measure proxy of engagement. And then you have another newsletter being like, we've actually seen our, our open rates really go up over the last year. And it's just like you're sh sort of showing me that you don't know why that is. <laughs> and that's not a good sign. The engagement's up because the metric is ruined. And if you're like not acknowledging that, then you're probably not selling properly exactly See, yeah. that's that, that's where i don't know what's happened with ours because our open rate has always been between 45 and 50 yeah, percent since we started yeah, the newsletter how many years ago and it's not mm. changed so it's really difficult to gauge like are we having if <laughs> we got 70 percent open rates that we just don't know yeah. about or have we only got 20 percent <laughs> yeah maybe i wonder maybe if uh just... readers uses apple that's what i was gonna say <laughs> Yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's a smaller percentage of Apple Mail users in the UK. I don't know. And there there is because mm. because Apple's definitely got lower uh, market penetration mm. here. Mm. But um, I also I, I I've got the thing like review have got a slightly different way of measuring it than like a lot of the other email platforms. So I don't know. I, I hope half our subscribers. <laughs> Peter, what mm. I thought was was really interesting there was we've been talking about normalization of newsletters as part of a wider editorial product. You think that this year in particular has been sort of the proof point for that? Mark said normalization, Esther said productization. It's all the same thing. It's about bringing newsletters into that kind of portfolio and treating them seriously rather than as, you know, a, a, an afterthought. I remember in the old days, again, I'm, this is a pretty nostalgic episode for me. <laughs> um, the, the, the holy grail was software that could automate your email production. No. Your newsletter production. <laughs> yeah, basically what? whatever you uploaded to your CMS got dumped right into your newsletter. Uh, Peter, and it, that's it, science it, fiction. That's, that is James Cameron out, type shit. It spat out your most ten, your ten most recent CMS posts, 
And people thought that was the best thing since sliced bread. And, and if you look at it now, it's clearly box. It's like <laughs> now people are doubling down on the whole personality aspect of things. Newsletters are self-contained. There's original reporting going on. I think the Guardian, yes, I mentioned the Guardian and stuff, and they hired some new staff and they revamped. I think the Guardian's got something like 50 different newsletters. But they've kind of moved away from that curated thing, that, that list of links, which we do. And we do it, you know, very deliberately. But the Guardian's moved away from that to more original report, and they've got more deep dives. So they do, you know, Alex Hearn's technology newsletter. Does they do a women's football newsletter? So it's getting very. So they're almost like magazines mm. um, in some ways. Uh, you know, one <laughs> I saw. Uh, um, I can't remember its name. It's bugging the crap out of me. I saw a magazine, a, a newsletter, like a magazine, just about sandwiches. And it's paid. It's £3 a month. And you get sandwich recipes in this newsletter once a, once a week. It's brilliant. It's absolutely genius. So I think, you know, newsletters are moving towards that kind of magazine style in, in some ways. But um, you, you mentioned The Guardian with that. Part of their pitch with, with how they revamped theirs is that they said that it was... Again, it was this antidote to the constant, like, endless yeah. scroll of social media. Like, you get yeah. an addition, it's fine, and it's it's an addition in your inbox that if Google do, if Mail doesn't crop it, you can mm. actually read to the end too. So I said I get loads of newsletters, but I only read some. I read Quartz newsletter every day because it's really, really easy to read, and I don't need to click out if I don't want to. Although I did click it today on an article about Edgar Allan Poe, which is well, fascinating. Well, interestingly, then they know that you've read wow. it. I hope that we have not been too down on newsletters because they obviously do serve a vital function and they are personality-led, which I, I feel like we all think is incredibly valuable when it actually comes to both brand building and generating revenue and also actually informing the public if it's coming from somebody you trust. But I, So I want to end this on a bit of an optimistic note. So Esther, why don't you tell us what you think has been the one of the greatest media moments of the year, one of the best performing newsletters and one of the best performing growth strategies? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is a very small publisher, but it was my absolute favourite um, growth strategy um, in terms of if you, if you want to actually change the world. Um, so we we spoke to um, Roka News, who are a social first news startup. Um, they they do these sort of uh, four little cards a day on Instagram, and their whole pitch is that they're a bit of an antidote to the kind of constant negative news cycle. Um, they present present sort of very fact based bullet point news non-partisan it, it, I, I really really like them I'm a big fan of them um, and they posted to their Instagram feed earlier this year that they had a thousand dollars to market their newsletter that week uh, they've got a, a newsletter that the Roka Current that um, again it takes a similar sort of style and they said that if they hit a thousand new newsletter subscribers they would give away a thousand dollars to people grocery shopping in poor neighbourhoods in the area um, they hit that goal within three hours because their Instagram followers are like, yeah, all right, <laughs> that's great. Um, days later, they'd hit their second goal of $10,000 for 10,000 new subscribers. Uh, and the next goal is 100,000 new subscribers in returns for the same in dollars. Uh, they are currently VC funded, which is how they can afford to do that. But, I was going to um, say, where the hell did they get $100,000? <laughs> they've got, uh, yeah, they've got quite a but it, I was you loving this story right up until you mentioned VC. <laughs> I was loving it. If you've not heard of them or if, you, if you're not sort of sure about what they do, um, this is a really good way to introduce the brand to you. Um, and yeah, it's, it's how I basically, I, I followed them on Instagram because I was, had to interview the guy and I found them so good I've stuck around. So their challenge now is making sure that they're good enough to keep those people. They've got a video on their Instagram feed of, of giving out this money in, in some of the poor neighbourhoods and it's just lovely it's really really nice so don't say anything negative I'm, that, that's, that's how i'm <laughs> that's, how we're, that's how we're rounded it off yeah, yeah absolutely well honestly I, I think that newsletters are so evergreen we're going to be talking about them for years and I, hopefully you know to, to what mark was saying there's going to be so many developments in terms of the tech that underpins it and in terms of how publishers think about strategy and ideally how individuals can kind of prove the viability of them as a money maker in their own right but Mark, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to have a chat with us. Are there any newsletters you do that you would like to point some of the listeners to? Or where else can, can the listeners find you? I have a personal newsletter that I've let languish for like six months now. So I would I would be, uh, <laughs> I could not in good conscience promote it. 
but I will bring it back one day. I think I was telling Esther this. It will come back eventually, I promise. Uh, but until then, I would just say you can follow me on Twitter at MarkStenberg3 or follow my work at Adweek. And thank you to um, <laughs> our sponsors, you. Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of Media Voices podcast and the upcoming Media Moments 2022 report in which we're going to be doing an in-depth dive into not just newsletters, but subscriptions, basically everything that we're going to be talking about this entire season. If you'd like to learn more about topics like optimizing subscription conversion rates, stealable retention strategies, and tips like how to limit the impact of a paywall on SEO, then Pool have a ton of helpful resources at blog.pool. That's P-O-O-L.tech. And don't forget, you can actually pre-register to download the Media Moments 2022 report by going to voices.media slash MM22. And Esther, we would be remiss if we didn't promote our own newsletter, I suppose. I was going to say, we should totally do our own newsletter, <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, so we do a daily newsletter, which uh, Marcus, I'm such a glowing testimonial. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we pick the top four media stories each day you need to know. And if you want to give that a try, um, you can go to our, our website, voices.media. You can have a look through if you don't want to put your email address in quite yet. Um or, we could, yeah, just pop your email in. We could have talked about that. We could have talked about that at length, about how you can sort of like try before you buy almost with some newsletters now. <laughs> uh, okay, Mark, we'll have to get you back in about, I don't know, a week's time to go over this. So hopefully you're up for that. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm, well, I mean, I truly like, I know, I really do feel like we're just scratching the surface. Like to your point and kind of what Peter was saying about like, magazines trend, or sorry newsletters trending toward magazines and like publishers looking at them and saying this is our version of the newspaper i think this was one of y'all had said something like that i and i was speaking with a software engineer like six months ago and he said something like email as a form is old and cringy and creaky and <laughs> and so feature lacking but as an idea of where can I go and have this all be finite and daily and readable? So I think that we're just early, early days in terms of like what newsletters are going to be. I think there's a future in which newsletters are not necessarily on email or there are not email going forward. So I think that really the sky's the the limit for this this channel. And it's really exciting to kind of watch it evolve. That, that's so interesting. I thought that, was... That, that was all we needed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should we just, we just way... put that out? <laughs> that was way more positive than your story, <laughs> Well, here's the thing. So I, I was, all mediums are, they come to be defined by their flaws. So if you think about like records, you've got record scratches and VHS, you've got like artifacting and the kind of scan lines. Mm-hmm. And when we think about newsletters, so far they are, to Mark's point, defined by the fact that they are delivered by email which is kind of featureless. So it'd be really interesting to see if in the near future we'd sort of taken beyond that. Newsletter used to be in print. They used to be A4 photocopied sheets. And they also used to be faxes. People used to get fax newsletters. You you lot don't even know what fax is. No, Peter, I know fax. Seriously, fax newsletters, A4 newsletters was huge. That is... Chris, do you just just want to say until next week and then I'm going to pit stop? a bonus episode. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do this as a second bonus episode. Mark, (laughs) this is the messiest sign-off ever. Mark, thank you so much. (laughs) And to the listeners, thank you for sticking through that sign-off. We will see you very, very shortly for another episode of Media Voices. But for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Ta-da! Ta-da!